This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with the message that Jesus is alive today. Now, today's lesson is titled, Promised Blessings, and it comes from Haggai 2, verses 10 through 23. But before we start our lesson today, we're talking could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song is ever played, there's utility bills and tower rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with the tax-deductible gifts, so won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648, and there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone, or mail us your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Now, your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS-approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Now, your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website, that's Radio Bible Class with no spaces between radiobibleclass.podbean.com or catch us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Whether that's Spotify or iTunes or Amazon or Google, we're there too. Just search for WMER Radio Bible Class with no spaces between Radio Bible Class. Today, if we're lucky, we should finish up the book of Haggai. Remember, it's a minor prophet, which means it's just a shorter message than the other prophets. It's not that they were any less important or the message that they gave was any less important. It's just the length of the book is why it's called a minor prophet. Anyway, we're in week three of Haggai. The first week we talked about first things first. We talked about the temple and the importance of the temple. And now that Jesus came and he died on the cross for us, how the temple is inside of us. We are the temple. Our body is the temple. We've been bought with the price is what the Bible says. And then we looked at why they lost their priority. Why did they stop building the temple? Remember that they've been in exile with Nebuchadnezzar, came and overtook Jerusalem. He tore the temple down. For 70 years, God had them in exile. After about 50 years, King Cyrus takes over from the Medo-Persian. They overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. And so now Cyrus lets them go back and he tells them they can build their temple. And so they come back and we looked at Ezra, how excited they were. But then they stopped building and we looked at why. And that was because of the external conflict. And the internal conflict, they got distracted. They'd been away, so they wanted to build a place to live. They wanted to make it nice. They were focused on themselves instead of God. And so that's why Haggai comes on the scene and he calls them out. And we saw at the end of chapter 1 that they responded and that they were going to start rebuilding the temple again. We saw the excitement. And last week we looked at the first nine verses of chapter 2 and we looked at moving forward and not looking back. And that it was only God's opinion that matters. It doesn't what man says about us. It doesn't matter what we've done in the past. God can use us no matter what our past is. And we wrapped up looking at how God keeps his promises. That we can go through his word and he keeps each and every one of those. That takes us to verse 10 and that's what we're going to pick up today. The first thing we're going to look at is the defilement. We'll see that in the first several verses. Then we'll look at a rebuke and discipline that comes. And then we're going to finish up with the promised blessing of the chosen one in the line of Zerubbabel. 
With all that said, turn with me to the book of Haggai. We'll be looking at the second chapter starting in the 10th verse, reading out the ESV. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with the people and with the nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they have offered there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to the heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. We're going to stop right there for now. So here we see Haggai's third message to the remnant and to the leadership. They've come from Babylon, like I said. They've been in captivity. And they're here, and they have an opportunity to experience God's true blessings. That's what he says right there at the very end of this passage. And similar to the rebuke that we saw in chapter 1, we see the rebuke again. They're reminded of how they got busy with their own work and their own house, and the temple got put aside. Remember, it's been 15 years, and Haggai now comes on the scene. And so part of that rebuke is Haggai telling them that it's not enough just to reconstruct the physical temple. God never desired a fancy building or a lot of sacrifices if the heart of the worshiper is not right with him. Some commentators say that some, if not all of these, that were rebuilding the temple, they thought, if I can just get this building reconstructed, it'll be a good luck charm for us. We are rebuilding God's temple and he'll be with us if we just rebuild this. He'll be happy with us and he'll bless our harvest. He'll make them bountiful. But the problem was their hearts were not right before God. They were not drawing nearer to him with clean hands and pure hearts. And Haggai delivers this message to challenge them, to rebuke them. Not only that they need to keep working on the temple, but they need to do it from the heart and from the right motive. Remember when we studied 1 Samuel? God looks on the inside. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his statue, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so we see through Haggai, the Lord asked two questions of the priest. First, he asked if a man carries holy meat and offers it in a sacrifice in the fold of his garment, and he touches bread with the garment and the food. Does all that food that he touches, does it become holy? And the priests answer correctly. They say, no, the meat would not make the garment holy, and therefore what he touches would not be holy. And then God asks the second question. You know, if someone's unclean through contact, maybe with a dead body and touches it, 
and then they touch something else, does it become unclean? And the priests answer correctly again. They say yes. And they knew all this through Leviticus. Leviticus teaches us that unclean can be passed on, but holiness can't be. And what the Lord is telling them is you've got to make yourself holy and you've got to do the work from your heart, not just do the work out of just making a work and saying the Lord's going to bless us. Make me a lucky charm. The example that God asked them is like help. If I'm healthy and you have the flu or maybe coronavirus, my coughing in your face won't make you well just because I'm healthy. But your coughing in my face will definitely make me sick. See, health is not contagious, but the disease that is making you sick is contagious. I think everyone listening to me would agree. It's easier to get sick than it is to stay healthy, especially when you're in constant contact with someone that's sick or with sick people. I remember when my daughter became a school teacher. Her first year, she stayed constantly sick, not because she changed her health or her hygiene. It's because she went into school where it's a petri dish of germs. And she would bring home those sickness, and then next thing you know, it'd be through our whole house. Everyone around wound up catching whatever she brought home. And sin is like that. You don't pick up holiness antibodies by hanging around holy people. But you do pick up a sin virus by hanging around sinful people. Matter of fact, it's not hard because we're all born with that sin virus. And the only thing that can make us immune to that sin virus is by accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And even then, we have to die to ourselves daily or we find ourselves still being a little bit sick by creating a sin here or there. The sad part is that there's too many Christians walking around that think just the opposite. They think that if you hang out in the church building around the church crowd, surely some of it will rub off. Some of it will give me holiness antibodies. They think that they can then hang out with godless people without any effect of what will happen to them. But they're wrong on both accounts. But don't get me wrong, I'm not asking you to check yourself into a monastery and avoid contact with the world. But I am saying two things. First, you won't catch godliness by joining a godly group of people. You must personally get right with God by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. And you must walk in personal holiness before him. You have to get in his word. You have to pray. You have to say, let the Holy Spirit lead me. I'm going to die to myself. Hanging out with godly people will definitely help you walk with God. But you won't catch your holiness by osmosis. And second, you should view your contact with the world, whether it's through worldly people or an exposure to worldly ideas, you've got to see it like a doctor sees his patients. There's a real danger of infection, so you must exercise precaution and keep your objectivity. You need to keep your mind on God's word. You need to ask for help. You need to put on the whole armor of faith. But we do have to interact with the world because Jesus said, go and make disciples. He wants us to go snatch them from the fire, but we got to be careful that we don't get polluted by the flesh. That's what the book of Jude says. Jude 1, verse 23, Save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude teaches us we need to rescue them by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to others, but do so with great caution, hating the sin that contaminates their life. Notice it doesn't say hating that person. It says hating the sin, not the person. And so now I want you to look at 
verses 15 through 19. We just looked at verses 10 through 14 and we solved the two questions. But we see that God says we've got to put his house first. We've got to put him first. And when he does, we will get true blessings. If you look at verse 15, he says, consider this day four. Now, you've got to put that in modern day English. He's really saying, can't you see what's happened to you? Before you started to rebuild the temple, you would go to a pile of grain expecting to find 20 bushels there. But there would be only 10 bushels. You'd go to draw 50 gallons of wine from a vat, but you'd only find 20. But I want you to see verse 17. That is the most important verse to me. God says, I sent scorching winds and hell to ruin everything you tried to go, but you still didn't repent. How do we know who did it? Because he says, says the Lord of hosts, I struck you and all the products that you're toil with blight and with mildew and with hell, and you didn't turn to me. Consider from this day forward. This time he's saying, see what's going to happen going forward because the foundation of the temple has been completed. He's saying, although there's no grain left, although the grapevines and the fig trees and the pomegranates and olive trees haven't produced yet, I'm going to bless you. That's how he ends in verse 19. I will now bless you. God says, think back to the past. There's a direct correlation to your selfish thinking and having the lack, not having enough, having difficulty in your life. But now that you put me first, now that you are going to finish the temple, now that you're not neglecting and putting me in the right priority, there's a blessing that's coming. And from this day forth, you'll see it. God's telling them just what we learn in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. If you're not being spanked by God when you're out of his will, you need to make sure you're one of his true children. Let me add this to it as well. Sometimes the Lord is slow to discipline. So you may get away with some sin before you get the ultimate spanking. The Lord, though, will discipline those he loves in his time. And so what he's saying here is because that you started to obey me three months earlier, even though you haven't seen any of the results yet for the good work that you're doing by putting me first, getting your priorities right, repenting of what you've done, he says in verse 19, from this day on, I will bless you. You might be getting wrapped up around the words from this day onward. What that's really saying is, over the past 16 years, remember they haven't, they've been out of captivity now for 16 years and they started and then they stopped. And he says, from this very time forward though, I'm going to bless you because you are putting obedience in place. You're putting me first. You've got everything right. I'm going to bless you. But I want you to understand though, I don't want to do a name it and claim it. That blessing doesn't mean that God removes all our problems. It's rather that he grants his presence in our problems and he promises to help us through that problem. Sometimes God sends problems our way so that we'll walk closer to him, so that we'll learn from it. Just like we take a test at school to learn from the material that we've been studying to make sure that we have it down. So God's not promising no more problems. He's just promising a blessing to his people. So hopefully you've seen that we've looked at the defilement, that righteousness isn't contagious, and that sin is contagious. And we looked at the rebuke, and we saw that how God had rebuked them, and he disciplined them, but because they had put him right, that he had now made a blessing to them, a promise to them that he will keep. I want to wrap up looking at this last little section of verses, because it is a messianic again, and it's also a promise that was made to David that his house would carry forward. 
And so we're going to see the chosen one will still come out of the lineage of David. Look at verse 20 with me. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 1 real quick, look what verse 12 says. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim was the father of Sheatel, and Sheatel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Ebud. What we see right here is the signet ring is the very promise of Jesus' lineage. Matthew documents the lineage. Even when there was the deportation, when they were taken, in verse 11 it says, And Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers, at the time of deportation to Babylon. So even there, he was the king at the time. He was down from David, which we see earlier. In verse 6, we see David, the king. But look what it says again right here in Haggai 2, verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God had a plan just like God has a plan for you. And we see right here how the thread was intertwined through the legacy of David and the signet ring that Zerubbabel is in this lineage. God has a definite plan for history. But notice his plan. He says, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and the riders. I will take you, Zerubbabel, and I will make you like a signet ring. But the statement I love most, he says, I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You see the sovereignty of God. You see that he is in control and he is making everything play out to his plan. If you're a Christian, this should impress you that God has an idea about what he's going to do, and he does it. History isn't just some careening out of control, but God is sovereignly in control of all the events of history for his purpose. And he, and he declares this. Listen to what Isaiah 14, 24 says. The Lord of hosts sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. Sadly, there are Christians today who deny God's sovereignty over man's will. They say because man gets to choose, there's no way that God can know what man's going to choose, so therefore he's not sovereign. It all just happenly happened. It's a game of chance. And what you and I need to walk away from today is understanding that we have a choice. God gave us a choice. We can either cooperate with his plan and his purpose and in that case, we are blessed just like he promised the nation of Israel, or we can fight against it, in which we will not win in any way. We won't stop it. His glory and his plan will go into effect and will be judged for fighting it. As I was preparing for this, I read one person who said, I hope you understand that God is sovereign. God doesn't say, I hope to be able to shake the heavens and the earth, but it depends on how men respond to their free will. I would like to take Zerubbabel, if you're willing, my man, and make you my signet ring. I sure hope it works out good. 
I hope you say yes. But God is quite absolute in declaring what he's going to do in his plan and his future plan. Before they went into captivity, the nation Israel was about two to three million people. They were a fierce army. God let them lose. But now as this remnant has come back, we're talking about 50,000 people. It would have been easy for Zerubbabel to say, yes, Lord, I hear you, but we're, we've returned to this land. We're few in number. We have no king. We have no army. We don't even have weapons to use in our defense. We're surrounded by hostile and powerful nations, and we're just subject to the most powerful kingdom on the face of earth, with this the Medo-Persian kingdom. How are we going to prevail? But God is very clear in what he says and his sovereign purpose that he demands that even with the least amount, he can make the most out of it. Remember what God told Gideon? God told Gideon, the people who are with you, you have too many. If I let you win with that many people, people are going to say that we did it. We had the power to save ourselves. Gideon said, you're right. We had 22,000. I don't understand why you cut us down to 10,000. And God says, no, that's still too many. I will test them and I will tell you the ones to take. You're to only take the ones that lap like a dog. And when it was all said and done, he only had 300. He went from 22,000 to 10,000 to 300. But look what the Bible says in Judges 7 verse 9. Now on that same night it came on that the Lord said to him, Arise and go against the camp, for I have handed it over to you. Did you catch that? Arise and go against the camp for what I have handed it over to you. Do you remember? He got the exodus to happen. He brought on the plagues. The mighty Egyptians finally gave in. The king said, take them. I don't want them anymore. Then he chases after him and he drowns the king and the most powerful army at that time in the Red Sea. God handed over those to Moses and the people. He used Joshua and Caleb, who trusted to conquer fearsome giants. He took down walls. What I'm trying to tell you is that God has a plan, and his plan will come to fruition no matter what we do, no matter what we choose. God is sovereign, and there is nothing too hard for him. And we see in verse 23 that God says through Haggai, For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And some of you aren't going to like this statement. God's plan was done and God chose Zerubbabel because God knew that he would fall into place, that he would do what he was supposed to do. God brings up leaders because he needs them to act in a way. And sometimes he takes evil leaders like Nebuchadnezzar to do his work for him to take the people of Israel into captivity. And it's the same way with salvation. God chooses us. Now people must choose to trust in Jesus when he tugs on our heart as Lord and Savior. God commands them to repent and believe in the gospel. Go read Mark 1.15. But when people make that choice, it's because God has enlightened them. God chose them. Listen to the book of John. John 15.6. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Right here we see that we are chosen. We are appointed. God chooses us. Now we have to respond. And some of you are out there, you're like, Tim, I think you may be getting a little off here. I had to ask God to forgive me. And you did. You had to believe. But you had no spiritual enlightenment till God chose you. Your mind was blinded by Satan and by sin. You couldn't see the light of the gospel. 
you couldn't understand or accept the things of the Spirit because the spiritually you had not discerned that. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So when anyone chooses to trust in Jesus Christ, it is only because God has sovereignly chosen them and because Jesus willed to reveal the Father to them. Again, Luke 10, it says that, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So I want you to see that God chose Zerubbabel. And then he says that I'm going to make you like a signet ring. He says, I'm going to make you the signet ring. I'm going to make you like a signet ring. And what this really is saying, back in that day, the signet ring was an instrument that a king would use to seal official documents. It was a symbol of honor and authority, and it showed that the authority was being handed over to him. But really, this is even more messianic because what he's really saying is that Zerubbabel is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center and the final goal of what God was going to do in human history. The whole Old Testament points ahead to Jesus Christ. God's promise to Abraham and to David find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All of the New Testament centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And again, we see that in the New Testament that Jesus reveals himself after his resurrection on the Emmaus Road. There he taught them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things that concerned himself all through the scripture. See, it's important that we, though, understand that Zerubbabel is a type of Christ, but he wasn't the Christ. He wasn't the Messiah. Again, promises were not fulfilled in his lifetime. He never ruled on the throne of Israel. He didn't live to see the throne of the kingdoms overthrown. That's the point of the last thing about God's plan for history. I'm out of time, so let me wrap up with this final thought. We don't know what happened to Zerubbabel after this. See, the Bible is silent, so we don't know. It leaves Zerubbabel with these hopeful promises, but we never hear of him again until he appears in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. My question for you today, are you like the remnant that God spoke to through Haggai? Is your priority out of line? Is your hand still defiled? Are you doing a lot of work? Are you trying to move the kingdom forward, but you're doing it out of a defiled heart? What is the motive behind there? Or are you, are you doing it with a pure heart? Are you clean? Is God accepting your sacrifice? Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord. We thank you for this time together. Lord, we thank you for this book of Haggai. Even though it was three short lessons, there's so much richness in here that we can learn from. One, that we need to have our priorities straight. We need to quit putting other things in front of you. We need to understand that we need to grow spiritually, that we are building the temple inside of us. And it doesn't matter that we worry about external conflict. And we definitely need to not let our talk ourselves out of internal conflict. But we need to respond. And Lord, we see your promise of blessings when we do. Lord, we understand that sometimes you spank us when we get a little off path. But you always do that so that we will come back, just like you did here. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for sending him to die on a cross so that we can make a way back to you, that we can overcome the sin chasm that we have, the sin problem that we have, that you gave us a, an antiviral that we can get through Jesus Christ. But we have to accept him and believe on him. 
And Lord, today, I'm sure there's one listening to me that doesn't know you. And Lord, I pray today they would ask you to be Lord of their life. They would turn from their ways. They would repent. They would say, I need you to be Lord of my life. And then they would believe on you, your finished work, and how you overcame death. And they would chase after you. They would turn from those sins. Lord, maybe the ones that have put their priorities a little out of line. Maybe they've gotten tied up in their kids or work or family. Lord, I pray today that they would just lay those back down at your feet and they would say that they're sorry. They would repent, put you back in number one. Well, we love you. We praise you. We give you all the honor and glory. It's in your name we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.